Well, here we are. It is time, Simba. If you understand that reference, you might be about the age where we should be working together. It's possible. But it is now one of three times a year that I'm accepting clients for my freedom framework, overcoming food sensitivities and increasing energy without unnecessary restriction. My goal for my one-on-one clients is to take them through frameworks and explore tools for achieving 50, 80, 90% of their goals in just a few months and show them how to continue to heal on their own so they don't need me anymore. Honestly, I think we're doing great one-on-one work here, helping women that would otherwise be falling through the cracks, thinking that they're just aging, that they're just moms, that they just, and it may be true that they just have stress when really those stress hormones and their other core systems just really need some serious support and some serious love to serve them for years to come without symptoms. So if you'd like to clear inflammation, eczema, food sensitivities, or improve energy and brain clarity, I'd love to chat with you. You can book a call with me at kristabigler.com forward slash FSS, kristabigler.com forward slash FSS, and that link will be in the show notes. Welcome to The Less Stressed Life, all about making this your time to feel freaking awesome about your life, health, and happiness. This podcast of The Less Stressed Life is hosted by Krista Bigler. Krista is an integrative registered dietitian nutritionist who specializes in reducing food-related stress, inflammation, and symptoms of food sensitivities. To learn more, visit lessstresslife.com. Today's Kitchen Ninja tip is being fancy when you're asked to go to someone's house at dinner and you want to bring something nice that takes five minutes. So my go-to, I also feed my kids this as well, is having frozen flatbreads. So I pick up some non-bread that's not frozen at the grocery store and then go ahead and throw that in the freezer. And like last night I went to a little dinner thing and I spread some cream cheese, but I've never really used cream cheese on it before. I've done it with just straight figs, but this time I was going to use a fig jam that I had in my fridge. So if you see fig jam, it's very, very fun. It pairs very nicely with a reduced balsamic vinegar. So I just went ahead and spread the fig jam over a little cream cheese, or I could have just done the fig on the flatbread or some other um, fruit potentially. And then to make a balsamic reduction, it's kind of something you've got to watch. Uh, It takes about five minutes. You put the heat on about medium. You pour a bunch of balsamic vinegar straight into the pan and then you let it simmer until it reduces just enough so it's syrupy. So if you kind of let it go and you walk away from it, it'll turn into hard stuff. It reminds me of candy making, not that I'm a candy maker, but it's almost like, oh, too late and it's gone. So last night mine got too thick and I just added more balsamic vinegar till it got back to the right consistency. So I was able to save it. No big thing. Make sure you wash that pan right away because it does stick on pretty hard. But if you drizzle that syrupy stuff, I did put a couple drops of stevia in one because I used to have a, a vanilla fig balsamic that was delicious put a couple drops of that in there. So medium, pour balsamic vinegar in there, reduce it. It'll turn into kind of a nice syrup, drizzle it over something. If you drizzle it over fruits or fruity flatbreads or whatever, it's really nice. I put those, actually I'm, I microwaved the flatbreads because literally I needed to go. And then I put it in the oven on broil on one of those stones and then I was ready to rock. So if you want to look fancy, uh, fig 
fig flatbreads with a reduced balsamic glaze or over some other kind of baked fruit on flatbreads could be very, very nice. Oh, and on this week's episode with Lily Nichols, there's a little bit of a funky robot thing that happens to the background, but it only lasts for a moment and then you'll be back to the regular interview. Okay, so today we have Lily Nichols. Lily is a registered dietitian nutritionist and certified diabetes educator with a passion for evidence-based prenatal prenatal nutrition and exercise. Her work is known for being well-researched, focused, thorough, and unapologetically critical of outdated dietary guidelines. Her work has not only helped tens of thousands of women manage their gestational diabetes, mostly without the need of blood sugar-lowering medication, but has also influenced nutritional, nutrition policies internationally. She's the author of two best-selling books, Real Food for Gestational Diabetes and, most recently, Real Food for Pregnancy, which outlines the problems with current prenatal nutrition guidelines and provides evidence over 930 citations that support a real food diet to optimize maternal and fetal health. Welcome, Lily. Thanks for having me. So the book covers a lot. I've been speed reading it a little bit. And uh, I just wanted to summarize really quickly that even though it's called Real Food for Pregnancy, it would be good for someone thinking about becoming pregnant, someone that is pregnant, postpartum, or breastfeeding, because you have meal plans, supplements, and you go through each one of those. So even if you're already past pregnancy and you just want to look at the postpartum part, you could still get it and look through that because of how well it's organized. So I wanted to mention that, but First, before we really jump into the meat, why did you become an expert in this niche? Because I think you have um, a son, and I think he is kind of young, and I think this interest started a long time ago, right? So I'm curious if, about your background story with this. Yeah, for sure. Uh, yeah, I have a son. He's almost two and a half now. So, uh, but my first book, Real Food for Gestational Diabetes, I wrote before before I had any kids. Before I had this one kid. Mm -hmm. (laughs) I can't say kids. Um, My interest in this started a long time ago. I actually uh, found out about the work of Dr. Weston Price when I was in high school. So I hadn't even started my formal nutrition education. And he talks about how in uh, these, these traditional cultures, ones that hadn't been affected by um, modernized food and all of these other things, uh, they, had healthier kids. And when modern foods were introduced, uh, meaning like white, white sugar, white flour, things that wouldn't be available in like a hunter gatherer type environment, uh, all sorts of problems would develop, including, you know, fetal development, um, pregnancy outcomes, all sorts of things would, would be affected by this change in dietary practices. So I always found that fascinating, fascinating. and that kind of, that kind of again carried into my training, my training when I was going when through was school, school as a dietitian, dietitian and coming out in the field is sort of this like, wow, how could, how could we influence the next generation by what we're eating? And I didn't come to really understand, you know, how much there were there was modern support for this idea until I started working in the gestational diabetes field and found out that there is a much higher rate of obesity and type two diabetes among children who are exposed to high, high blood sugar levels from their mom during pregnancy. So uncontrolled gestational diabetes or uncontrolled any type of diabetes during pregnancy. And in fact, it's like a six fold higher risk of obesity and type two diabetes by the time these kids are adolescents. I was like, that is crazy. So 
I started really delving into the research then in those roles in the public policy role in gestational diabetes in the clinical setting um, and trying to bring in some of these, you know, real food ideas that I had been introduced to and learned about and been living myself um, since, you know, I was a teenager. Uh, (laughs) I can go into more, but that's where it all started. Well, so you were in a regular setting, you were in a clinical setting. And so I'm actually kind of curious from a dietitian perspective, was it hard to get people on board or was it kind of simple? And what results did you see? So what was interesting is I came into the field, at least in the gestational diabetes role, a little bit backwards because I started working in public policy. So I was working for the California Diabetes and Pregnancy Program, which is also known as Sweet Success, which set the standards for California, essentially. They were voluntary standards, but they were, you know, the most progressive standards um, for diagnosing and treating gestational diabetes in the United States. And then later worked clinically putting those guidelines into practice. And that's when I saw that the guidelines that I had been working on so diligently, which seemed so, you know, evidence-based and good at the time, um, they weren't giving us great outcomes. So, you know, it was pretty normal for about half of the women I was working with to require insulin and medication or quote unquote fail diet therapy. And that just didn't seem right to me because the guidelines are actually quite high in carbohydrates. They're lower than like general prenatal nutrition recommendations, but they're still a minimum of 175 grams of carbs per day. Um, And they still have carryover of all the regular dietary guidelines that are outdated, like low fat, low salt, low cholesterol, nonsense, basically. And so I, I was given free reign in my clinical role at the time. It was an outpatient um, perinatologist office to change up the guidelines and see if we can improve outcomes. So I did a lot of research to look at what would be safe or not safe. I wanted to be especially sure that going lower carb wouldn't cause any issues. Um, look at the nutrient density of doing it one way or the other way. And in that role, I developed my real food approach and we had way better outcomes. The the likelihood that our ladies would require insulin was like cut in half. They thought I had some magical counseling skills, which like I like to think that I'm, you know, an easy person to talk to and have some motivational interviewing skills. But it was really that there was different information being given to these women that was easier to follow and more sustainable. Um, and rates of, so rates of requiring medication and insulin went down, weight gain normalized. Um, we had very low rates of large babies, which is like a thing that you kind of expect from gestational diabetes, typically, um, less delivery problems, less preeclampsia. I almost never saw preeclampsia, which is kind of crazy because our practice was almost entirely gestational diabetes. My whole client load out of the whole day would be like 95% gestational diabetes. And we very, very rarely had preeclampsia, which is shocking because that is usually something that's pretty common with gestational diabetes. They'd come and see me six weeks postpartum. They'd have lost all the weight. Like it, it just, all the outcomes were better. Oh, that's very fun. So your entire practice that you were seeing, it was just kind of gestational diabetes. You were, that was amazing that you were able to have that free reign to change up the guidelines. And then how long do you think it took between implementing the new guidelines and then kind of really seeing the fruits of your labors within those first three to six, nine months? You can, I mean, I'm sure it was kind of cascaded, but when did your employer say, wow, this is really crazy? With like within, within a couple months, because you're seeing changes in blood sugar 
immediately. Mm-hmm. Right. I mean, we have women track their blood sugar four times a day and they would often see me, you know, they'd come to a class with me and then they'd follow up with me several times throughout their pregnancy. And you can, and then they bring their blood sugar meter every, every doctor's visit as well. So you could just see on the blood sugar printouts, like, okay, wow, I haven't had to write a prescription for insulin or metformin or something in a really long time. Lily's doing a good job, I guess, right? Mm-hmm. They, they just didn't fully recognize that the information was, was so much different. Yeah, that's amazing. So that was really the beginning with the gestational diabetes and seeing that all transition. So then came real food for pregnancy, right? Like stepping back and helping the people that weren't even diagnosed as gestational diabetes. And real quick, before we go into that, how, what is the incidence of gestational or diabetes during pregnancy? And is there like a borderline gestational diabetes? Because I would have said I fit in that category, but I don't know if they even categorize that. Mm, they don't categorize borderline gestational diabetes, but the, and the diagnostic criteria really determines the prevalence. So if you go by uh, the way that most of the U.S. diagnoses gestational diabetes, which is a two-step glucose tolerance test, um, 150 gram one and then 100 gram one, the rates of gestational diabetes are like five, six, seven percent. If you do the international standard, which is a 75 gram two hour glucose tolerance test, the, the prevalence rate is anywhere between 18 to 22 percent of pregnancies. So it's, it's by far the most common um, pregnancy complication. Uh, there are definitely varying degrees of severity. And if we start adopting stricter standards, we will just be diagnosing like a a broader range of women who might be in that borderline or like mild gestational diabetes category where the blood sugar is a little bit elevated, but not so, so high that you're like immediately jumping on medication or insulin. Yikes. I mean, what does that tell us? <laughs> it's one in five out of women. It's kind of a really big deal. And I'm curious, you know, there's more of a likelihood, there's a possibility you could continue to have official diabetes after pregnancy. Um, do you know what the number of women are that um, progress into diabetes after gestational diabetes? Yeah, so it depends on the study you're looking at, but it can be anywhere from 30 to 70%. Yikes. So they believe the the like pathology, I'll put that in quotes, of gestational diabetes is very much in line with the pathology of prediabetes and type 2 diabetes. So there's this idea that pregnancy is sort of a stress test on your body. Mm. You naturally become more insulin resistant as pregnancy goes on. That is like a, a normal part of pregnancy. Whether or not your blood sugar is well controlled given the insulin res- resistance that's going on is where you kind of get into murky waters. And right now, 50% of the U.S. population, U.S. adults, has either, has some form of diabetes, whether prediabetes or type 2 diabetes, most of which are undiagnosed. So I think the rise in gestational diabetes that we're seeing and this, you know, high prevalence rate is really more of a matter, it's like a, a, a commentary on what's going on population-wide, which is you know, dysregulated blood sugar, you know, higher rates of overweight and obesity. And that tends to put you into this category as you get pregnant. Right. And leads to many other things. Okay. So that's gestational diabetes. And then people really encourage you to step back and just talk about uh, prenatal nutrition, really kind of review that. So how did that all transpire? Yeah. So 
I, I didn't expect real food for gestational diabetes to take off in the way that it did. I just wanted to get this message out to other moms, dietitians, healthcare providers, and it, it really picked up in popularity and people were asking, hey, this looks like good information. Real food seems to make a lot of sense for all pregnant women, not just women who have gestational diabetes. Do you have a book to recommend on it? And I, I couldn't find a book on prenatal nutrition that I liked that went into enough detail that was evidence-based, um, that wasn't just pushing out the same guidelines without questioning if it made sense or didn't make sense. And so uh, I, I knew I was going to have to write a book on prenatal nutrition. It was just a matter of finding the time. So first I had a kid. <laughs> and then once I had my brain power back, it, it was on to writing the book. Um, and I'll, I'll just say like the the benefits of real food are, of course, not just limited to women with gestational diabetes, and we need to be really proactive about our health during pregnancy, and that was my goal, was providing all the information and the references um, to give women the confidence to to take a different approach and, and know that they were doing the best for their baby. How did your personalized experiment go, right? You were like, I better have a baby before I write a book about pregnancy. I'm sure that was not the plan, but it's kind of nice when you have personal experience, right, before you write about something? Yeah, not not exactly the plan. What surprised me most, people have asked, you know, has did your recommendations on nutrition or your experience during pregnancy, like, shift your your recommendations? And I can't say they shifted my recommendations all that much. It just gave so much more context to my recommendations and refined certain things as well. So, you know, the experience of like nausea in the first trimester, like that is definitely something that you want to be eating all the most nutrient dense foods possible. And you have all the science that's telling you, okay, I need to eat this, that, and the other thing. And you can't Mm -hmm. like that is a reality. And that's something that you have to face. So when I was writing the book, I could go back to that experience. I wanted to put into context why it might be happening. So I feel like our bodies are never dumb. They're always talking to us for good reason. So it, it was it was like contextualizing the experience. Um, it definitely having, you know, going through pregnancy on my own uh, really made me want to include a chapter on postpartum because I felt like that was missing from all of my pregnancy stuff was not being not being educated enough on like what to expect postpartum, what to do, why to eat nutrients, dense foods, how, how to prepare, what to expect from the healing process. So there were definitely certain things in the book that were influenced by my own experience for sure. Oh, and I'm really glad that you did share that because even if someone listens to this and they say, well, I just finished my pregnancy, there really is I mean, really the postpartum part, as you know now, is really kind of the beginning of a whole nother journey, right? Like a whole other nutrition journey when you don't feel like you have the energy necessarily to eat nutrient-dense foods, but it's so important. Um, And the nutrition guidelines even change a little bit, um, you know, depending on if breastfeeding or not. And if you had a C-section and recovering from that quickly, I mean, there's a lot of pieces there. And we kind of just, I remember having my first child and realizing when I was in the hospital, oh my gosh, they are going to let me take this person home. I have no idea what I am doing (laughs) at all. I remember a week later, she was born in February. I remember a week later, and I was pretty young at the time. My mom said, oh my gosh, why are you ever dressed in my mom who'd had 
six children was like this is not at I mean she came by and like helped with everything but I, it's amazing yeah. like we we have this thing that we take for granted pregnancy childbirth etc and I mean certainly there's an industry around it but like you said man so much potential for to be better so much potential. oh my gosh yeah we need so much there are so many places we could take this conversation but we need more like reverence of the postpartum period as a time to rest and recover and not be super mom. Like you are super mom by sitting on the couch, nursing or feeding your baby all day long. Like you are doing all the things you're supposed to be doing. You can't like, (laughs) we put so many unrealistic expectations on new mothers and don't mother them enough. Mm -hmm. And we're not, we're not giving reverence to all the postpartum traditions across the globe, which are strikingly similar, where they really support new moms like crazy. And in the West, we don't do that at all. And it's an absolute tragedy, in my opinion. Um, And without that being built in, you have to prepare yourself to have things in place to be really nourished and taken care of postpartum, even when you don't have this proverbial village. So yeah, that, that, absolutely influenced the book and I had some early reviewers who were like eh don't put in the postpartum chapter it's kind of its own book and I was like no I'm putting it in there because if it's not in a pregnancy book you're not going to read it so (laughs) that is actually very true because you don't really have time to read postpartum it probably could have been like three chapters you're right um what if this happened what if this happened what if this happened but yeah exactly it's it's not of service to us it's not of service to our country and to our families to not have, I love the word reverence um, for, for talking about postpartum. It's perfect. Yeah. So talking about pregnancy again, you know, you're unapologetically, <laughs> you, you're forward about um, saying, you know, our policies are not evidence-based. So I'd love for you if you'd share with us um, some of your favorite myths, maybe three of your biggest myths uh, that you feel like have really struck a prenatal nutrition, but through your research and through what you found really are not, uh, what we should be doing. Um, maybe do we really need to eat for two? Yes, we can tackle that one first. Thanks for setting me up for that. Cause I'm like, which one do I choose? <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, eating for two is, I can't say the prenatal nutrition guidelines get this part wrong because they do point this out that eating for two isn't exactly eating for two in the way that most people interpret it. Most people interpret eating for two as eating like double the quantity of food or like, oh, you got a free pass because you're pregnant. You're eating for two. Go ahead. Um, Whereas really our actual energy needs don't increase all that much during pregnancy. Definitely not double. Um, The amount varies, like amount of calories, if we want to put a number on it, varies based on the research you're reading, but it's averages around 300 extra calories per day. So if your requirements are like 1800 or 2000, like 300 calories is a a fraction of your, of your energy intake, not double. Um, What does increase is your nutrient needs. So if you're thinking of eating for two in terms of nutrient density, then it makes a lot of sense. And you want to give a lot more attention to the quality of the foods you're eating and the nutrient content that they have. So if you had to pick 300 calories to add to your day that were more nutrient dense, what are a couple examples I would give someone? Well, eggs, hands down eggs would be fantastic. Um, I have a whole chapter in the book on like, which 
foods to emphasize based on the nutrients they contain. But one of the things that's huge about eggs is that they're the richest source of choline, which is a really important compound that's very similar to B vitamin, one of our B vitamins, but was identified after all our B vitamins were named. Um, that's crucial to brain development of the baby and then prevention of a bunch of different pregnancy complications. Eggs are by far the number one source in the diet. So eggs with the yolks for sure. Um, another one would be like salmon and fatty fish for the omega-3 content. If you're not eating salmon and fatty fish and then also not supplementing with um, some sort of a DHA supplement, you're likely not going to get enough. So that is another fantastic one. Uh, I don't want to do all animal foods, but um, vegetables, non-starchy vegetables, like fabulous source of antioxidants, fiber, magnesium, all sorts of nutrients that we absolutely need during pregnancy. And by the way, these foods, like you actually can eat quite a lot of these <laughs> because they're not, when they're not refined foods, you don't pack a huge calorie punch. So, you know, an egg might be like 60 to 80 calories, like not that much. Add a couple eggs to your day and you've vastly improved the nutrient density um, of your diet without eating like a, a massive amount of energy that would be pretty easy to, to pack down if it was like cupcakes or chips or something. Yeah. If you actually ate nutrient dense foods, it might feel like you're eating for two because you have to eat sometimes more of them or you get to yeah. eat more of them sometimes. And as, exactly. a, as a side note, someday you can come back and we can talk about choline because I'm pretty sure choline, I, I, it might be my favorite nutrient in the world. I think I have the biggest crush on choline. So I'm glad you brought that up. <laughs> Same. We could spend a whole hour talking about choline research. It's, so it's yes. really gotten the undercut. Like no one talks about it and it's really changed my life. So that's all I got to say about that yeah. at the moment. Okay. So we've got, let's talk about pregnancy myths. What's next? What, what is another one that you think is just doesn't work? Uh, another one, I'm going to choose the foods to avoid lists as a whole. So I feel like the first question that everyone asks when she gets pregnant is what can't I eat, right? What's not safe for me to eat? And we have these lists of foods to avoid, which nine times out of 10 are based on a food safety concern. So you want to avoid certain foods because they could make you sick and you're more likely to get sick during pregnancy because your immune system is a little, a little bit depressed to allow your baby to grow and thrive. So it's kind of a, an inborn thing. However, the foods that make the cut on these foods to avoid lists are kind of arbitrary, in my opinion, because when you start looking at the foods that are most commonly linked to foodborne outbreaks, food poisoning outbreaks, they're usually not the foods on the list, <laughs> or the relative risk of getting sick from these foods is pretty slim. Um, so for example, eggs with runny yolks. We'll talk about eggs because I'm, I'm just going to sort of secretly talk about choline without talking about choline. Mm -hmm. um, if you avoid, say you're a person who only likes eating eggs with runny yolks, and because you're pregnant, you're not going to do that because there is a, a risk of getting salmonella from them. First of all, the chance that an egg has salmonella is one in 30,000. It's sevenfold lower than that if you source your eggs from organically raised chickens or chickens raised on pasture. When they're raised better, they don't spread disease as much. Surprise, surprise. So teeny, teeny, tiny risk. But if you avoid eggs because of this, which a lot of women do, then you are taking out the number one source of choline from your diet. You're taking out an excellent source of protein in your morning. You're taking out a source of DHA. You're taking out 
all these other nutrients that are found in abundance in eggs for this really infinitesimally small risk. Um, and you can go through stats on a number of different foods that are on these foods to avoid lists, which I do in the book. Um, but then you come down to what's most likely to actually make you sick from food poisoning. And the number one cause of food poisoning cases in the U.S. is actually fresh produce, mostly leafy greens and fruits. So nobody tells pregnant women to avoid eating cantaloupe or avoid eating spinach salads. Of course, those are healthy, but those get the free pass for some reason, even though those are the ones that are more likely to make you sick. So it's not that I disagree that, that like certain foods are, are you know, a risk for you to get sick. Certainly, you could get sick from raw eggs. You could get sick from raw fish. You could also get sick from raw vegetables and fruits. So we just have to be common sense about food safety and not be so, um, you know, scarlet letter about certain foods when... I think they're chosen rather arbitrarily. So if someone is going to choose to kind of avoid the foods to avoid list, <laughs> uh, they're going to just kind of ignore it because it's really, like you said, they have just as many as much of a chance to have an outbreak from fruits or vegetables. Is the best option then to level up their microbiome? Yes. <laughs> yes. Oh. A, a, practice common sense about food safety. People think I'm like rogue for saying all this stuff, but like, my kitchen is very clean. There's no meat thawing on the counter. The cutting boards are washed between things. I'm washing my hands immediately after handling raw meat. Leftovers are not sitting out for like all day and then being put in the fridge. Like you have to be common sense about food safety for sure. Like there is a higher risk of getting sick. I just don't think it makes sense to put certain foods in this category of yes or no. Like be common sense about it. If you're going to eat sushi, for example, like buy the best quality sushi or go to the best sushi place in town that has super fresh fish. Don't buy like grocery store sushi, you know, yeah. um, be and really smart about your, your nose tells you in pregnancy, like smell aversions are a thing. Smell sensitivity is way heightened. It will tell you if something is bad, don't eat it. Mm -hmm. Thanks you know? for giving context to that because even though we think that that's common sense, I m move through life often and see that that is not utilized very well. Yes. So, um, so thank you for that. So eating for two. And then yes, on the microbiome for sure. Like if you protect your microbiome and have good, you know, probiotics in there, like that's where most of your immune system is located. So of course, if you have a healthier microbiome, you're going to be less susceptible to, to ickies in your foods. Mm -hmm. So we talked about eating for two. We talked about the foods to avoid. What's next? Oh, gosh. Oh, what do I choose? Um, that, uh, oh, salt. Let's do salt. So our conventional recommendations um, often suggest that you don't eat much salt during pregnancy, just like they recommend the whole population doesn't eat much salt. Um, and they especially recommend this to women who have um, high blood pressure or who are at risk for high blood pressure. What I uncovered on salt was fascinating. This was something I learned a lot more about after my pregnancy than I did during my pregnancy. I wasn't fearful of salt, but I definitely wasn't as um, pro-salt as maybe I could have been. Mm -hmm. They've actually found that salt needs go up um, quite a bit during pregnancy, which makes a lot of sense because your blood volume goes up. So with more fluids in your body, and you have like amniotic fluid and all that as well, um, you need more salt. You think about when you get dehydrated and you go to the hospital and they give you IV fluids, they don't 
pump you up with pure water. It's a saline solution. Um, so your body needs more salt, uh, period. And they've also found that having enough salt is really important for baby's uh, brain development, um, really important for the development of their internal organs. It actually, having enough salt prevents you from getting dehydrated during pregnancy or having volume depletion um, issues. It can actually help regulate your blood pressure rather than making it go up. It also improves insulin sensitivity. So this is like a, a good idea if there's any blood sugar issues going on. There's like so many different roles that salt plays in your body and it's just even more important during pregnancy. So uh, definitely not a time to cut back on your salt intake. I think there's a reason so many women crave salty foods like pickles and olives during pregnancy. So how is the best way, what's the best way to get salt? I mean, I would trust your taste buds and just salt things to taste whatever tastes good to you. But there's, you know, a, a lot of foods that, um, that contain salt. So, you know, olives, pickles, which I just mentioned, if you're doing, um, if you're cooking at home and like not doing processed foods, cause I'm not talking about like go hog wild on processed foods that are high in not good quality salt. Like they're not, it's not the salt that I'm worried about. It's like all the other junk in the food that you don't need. But if you're cooking at your, for yourself at home um, and not adding in a bunch of processed food ingredients to what you're making, you actually need to add salt when you're cooking. So I recommend between like half, half a teaspoon and a full teaspoon of salt per pound, pound and a half of meat and vegetables to just make it taste good <laughs> enough. Again, like your taste buds will kind of tell you if you've ever done if you've ever been cooking quote unquote healthy and you think it tastes horrible, it's probably because you're not using enough salt. That's something I observe a lot. Um, but yeah, it can come from other foods. Like I just mentioned, the ones that are naturally processed with a lot of salt, like preserved, uh, vegetables, um, sauerkraut, kimchi, your fermented veggies are all going to have, um, salt added into it. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I was curious if you were going to recommend mineral salt for just the added benefit or not. I do recommend sea salt over processed salt for sure, because at least you're getting the trace minerals with it as well. So, yeah. So I, I mean, I personally use like a Himalayan pink salt, but any of the unprocessed sea salts would be a good idea because our, our, our body relies not only on salt as an electrolyte, but like all these other minerals as well. And you do get those in trace amounts in salt. Okay. So it sounds now, like there's, Oh, go ahead. Um, sounds like there's a lot of myths that we could cover uh, that if someone reads the book, they will f see more of them. But one more thing I wanted to give you the opportunity to talk about um, was related to a reader question, because we talked a little bit about the really big concern with gestational diabetes and um, irregular blood sugars and high blood sugars and things in di or in uh, pregnancy. But so on that same note and how that plays into energy, I had a listener, um, she wanted to know if there was a better way, you know, when you're pregnant and you are like energy is a thing is a problem, right? Because you're, yeah. you're, you're spending nutrients growing a baby. Um, so she was wondering if there was if you had thoughts for maintaining optimal energy and minimizing bloating and swelling. And I was hoping that maybe you'd weave in some conversation about naked carps. Cause I, I like a good, I like a, like a funny, funny little thing like that. Yes. So energy levels in pregnancy, it's tough because your body is making a new human. It's okay to be tired and it's okay to rest first of all. So like 
listen to your body and rest. That's okay to slow down. <laughs> it's kind of probably on purpose that you're getting that signal. Um, second of all, if you're noticing your energy levels are like pretty variable based on the time of day, like you're getting a, a slump in the afternoon or you're noticing it's like around when you start getting hungry for food, often that can be a sign of a blood sugar issue. And I want to say like issue as in like, oh, you have gestational diabetes or something. But um, you can, if you can keep your blood sugar well regulated with smart food choices, you might not have as distinct of a slump in your energy levels. And one of the biggest tricks that I have seen work in practice again and again and again, pregnant or not pregnant, is just being really smart about your breakfast and choosing something that is going to help your blood sugar stay like even keeled for the morning, which has carryover effect on how your blood sugar responds the rest of the day, including the afternoon. Um, so plenty of protein and fat in the morning, like eggs, avocado, like sauteed veggies. If you want bacon or sausage in there, you don't need all of these things, but like get a solid source of protein in the morning, like Depending on how your body is, maybe there's some carbs in there, maybe maybe there's not, but you really need like something that is very satiating. Fat and protein don't raise your blood sugar, they just maintain it happily. If you were to, in lieu of a breakfast like that, do a breakfast like cereal and milk and fruit or a bagel, which is pretty high carb and not very much fat and protein, you'll see a huge spike in your blood sugar followed by a big dip and you'll be on a hormonal roller coaster of blood sugar highs and lows all day long. Because when you get that signal that your blood sugar is dropping really fast, your body tells you to eat more carbs. So if you're kind of on this like carb binging <laughs> sort of thing where you have to like have to have sugar right now or like have to have like a caffeine pick me up, um, that's usually a sign to go rewind, go back to breakfast and try something different the next day and see if it works. Um, to tie in the naked carbs thing, uh, I say no naked carbs, meaning like if you're, when you're eating carbohydrates, eat them with some fat and protein. Um, because the naked carbs, the carbs eaten by themselves. So an apple by itself, a piece of bread by itself, um, they'll give you a blood sugar spike followed by a pretty quick drop. Whereas if you combined them with something that has fat and protein, it'll sort of minimize the spike in your blood sugar and also minimize the trough. So if you're having bread, like have an egg with it, have some cheese with it, have some peanut butter with it. Um, your, your blood sugar will, will respond much better. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So what I heard you say was, it's a little bit of trial and error, but be smart about your trial and error. Don't just say like, oh, I feel like crap all the time, like, and just keep doing the same thing. Stop throwing spaghetti at the wall. Maybe take note of how some things are. Um, and another thing that you said is, you know, your blood sugar, everyone's blood sugar goes up and down, right? And so it's, yes. it's, it's prudent for us to all be cognizant of kind of how we respond to things, right? If you are hangry and you're shaky to things, like you need to pay attention to how you are responding to things. And there's all kinds of things that can help you with that. But that's just a sign. That's again, just one of those signs that your body is telling you, please change the way we're doing this, right? Like this isn't working. Yes. Can, we, can we do something a yes. little bit differently? And also like even beyond all the things we just talked about, there could be like, you might just need to eat. Like I remember having a conversation with a pregnant client who was like concerned that she was hungry for an afternoon snack. And we talked about what her lunch was. We talked about what her dinner was. 
And then I found out the time between lunch and dinner was like seven hours. I was like, well, yeah, you're hungry because you need to eat and it's okay. Like it might actually not be a problem that you're tired and hungry. You might just need to give yourself permission to eat. So I'm big on mindful eating and and listening to your body's cues, especially during pregnancy. And, and don't ignore them. Your body is not dumb. It's never sending you a signal because it's wrong. It usually is sending you a signal as a wake-up call to, to give him a little help, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's kind of been the theme of, of my practice this month is that uh, people – you know, sometimes like being busy can be a curse to where you don't even pay attention to your own cues and you're not paying attention. Like that's just a disservice and an irreverence to your body to not pay attention yes. to the fact that, uh, hello, if you wrote this down, you'd see you're like completely nutrient devoid. No wonder you feel like garbage. I mean, yes, it's just by the way. <laughs> so by the way, yeah. FYI. Yeah. Okay. So today we talked, we, un, we peeled back the layer a little bit on gestational diabetes, which was really helpful and how really that affects someone, you know, or someone you love, whether you know it or not, it's, it's there, it's affecting someone, you know, we talked about nutrition for, um, real food for pregnancy, uh, just the very, very skim to the surface by looking at a few myths about eating for two foods uh, to avoid whether or not to and salt. We also talked a little bit about naked carbs and kind of stabilizing blood sugar in that way as well. Um, Lily, if there was one more thing that you wanted to leave listeners with, maybe that they could start doing today to improve pre-pregnancy, prenatal, postnatal experience, um, what would that be? Oh, gosh. Uh, Pre, I'll say it at, at any time in your life. It's never a bad time to eat real food and eat more nutrient dense foods. Like there is literally never a bad time. I get asked a lot, you know, when should I start preparing for pregnancy or when should I do X, Y, and Z during pregnancy or postpartum, whatever. I think people get kind of worried about being on some sort of a, a structured plan or doing things in the right order or the right time. And don't overthink it. (laughs) Like, any time that you're giving your body more nutrient-dense foods, you're better. It improves your fertility. It improves your menstrual cycles. It improves your experience of pregnancy. It could improve your healing postpartum and even the nutrient density of your breast milk. Like, there's not a bad time to eat better food and listen to your body. So wherever you are, jump on it. Yeah, I hope that uh, even someone who's thinking about getting pregnant listens to this because I would love to applaud all those that do really look at their prenatal nutrition. I had someone who wanted to become vegan recently, but wanted to look at her nutrition status, you know, with some testing and different things before she got pregnant. And I'm really glad she took that step to do that because there was tons of deficiencies and voids and like applause for someone who takes, um, someone who's proactive, whether no matter what, right? Like she had this specific reason and was getting some, you know, whatever, it doesn't matter. But, um, I really appreciate that when I see people like, Oh, taking, taking initiative to fix things before they're broken. Yes. 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 Especially working with somebody like you and doing micronutrient testing because you're not the first dietitian who's reached out to me with, uh, information about a, a vegan client and some pretty severe nutrient deficiencies. So we, we just have to be really like we have to cut out all the dogma and all the rules about what we should be following or shouldn't be following and look at like where do you get the nutrients required to support fertility, support pregnancy, to support your healing postpartum, to support your baby's growth 
via the nutrients in your breast milk and just look at it like just like back up for a bit rather than saying like this way of eating is the right way and the only way or whatever. Um, it is a topic I go into into the book because I think it's something that is kind of a bit divisive the issue of plant-based or not plant-based. And I don't think it needs to be that way. I just think we need to be smart about why we're making these choices and if they're working for us. Oh, I could not agree more. You don't know how timely that is right now. So, (laughs) so, okay. Well, thank you so much, Lily, for coming on today, for sharing this. Where can people find you online? Yeah, you can find me at my uh, website, lilynicholsrdn.com. You can find more about the book real food for pregnancy at realfoodforpregnancy.com that's easy um i do give away the first chapter for free over there so if you just want to you know get your feet wet see what the whole real food thing is about uh, i do include a, a comparison of a conventional prenatal nutrition plan to a real food plan and the nutrient breakdown so you can see which one is more nutrient dense which a lot of people are are liking so if you want to check that out that's over, that's for free over at realfoodforpregnancy.com Great. Thanks so much, Lily. Appreciate it. One of the best gifts you could give us at The Less Stressed Life is your feedback. We are paid in podcast reviews. If you enjoyed this or any other episode, please leave us a review. In the iTunes store or from your podcast app, just search for Less Stressed Life as if you're not already subscribed. Click on the banana face image, scroll to the bottom where it shows the text of other reviews, and write a review. While you're there, hey, make sure you hit subscribe. For Android or Stitcher users, you gotta go to the desktop site and search for Less Stress Life and then scroll down to leave a review. Stitcher doesn't load Apple reviews on their site, so if you want, you can leave a review in both places. Your feedback means a lot to the success of the show. Thanks so much for taking the time to do that. You rock. 